I'm excited to announce that I've partnered with GiveSum to make your giving experience remarkable. GiveSum's digital web-based platform allows you to give to the charitable initiatives you care about most while also experiencing the difference your gift made. Join us in celebrating this partnership by visiting the link in the bio. Hello and welcome to Collisions YYC Sustainable Matters, a show where we have real conversations with people who are living at the intersection of sustainability and business. And nobody better to have that conversation with than my man this morning, Mr. Connor Shell. How are you doing, Connor? I'm doing well, Tyler. Good morning. Thanks for having uh, me. My pleasure, man. I don't even I don't even remember how we met because Calgary is always one degree of separation in my in my world. Maybe, I don't even know if it's one degree. It's, it's less than that. Somehow you and I got connected and I was, you know, I think right at the beginning when I was getting the show theme kind of put together going, ah, you know, I personally need to delve down this rabbit hole a little bit, learn a little bit more. Can't turn your head one way or the other, whether it's business or investment or whatever the case may be. And you're going to run into ESG. You're going to run into sustainability. So you're head of ESG practice group, uh, sustainability ESG lawyer at MLT Aiken. So just give us a quick elevator. What, what are you guys all about? What's a little bit, you know, day to day of your role? And then let's unpack this very juicy topic. Yeah, for sure. Thanks very much, Tyler. So as you mentioned there, I'm the head of the ESG practice group at MLT Aikens. Uh, a little bit about the firm. Uh, we, we're Western Canada's law firm, so we have offices in all of the major centers mm-hmm. in Western Canada, BC through Manitoba. Um, personally, I, I grew up in southern Saskatchewan, um, went to the U.S. for law school. Uh, career-wise, I went to, uh, or I started my career at Bennett Jones. I'm an environmental and regulatory lawyer by trade. I was there for a number okay. of years. Um, and then I went more recently over to Suncor Energy. Um, I was their first at the time uh, an environmental and regulatory focused lawyer. Um, so I spent about six or seven years in their legal department. And then the last two to three, um, I was the director of central environment and regulatory. So obviously touching on a number of sustainability issues. Um, now about a year and a half ago, um, I moved over to MLT Aikens back into private practice, uh, mainly because I saw the opportunity that ESG and sustainability provided through um, the legal lens, I guess you could say. So um, we built a practice group specific to ESG at MLT Aikens, um, and we do it a little bit differently, not to be salesy in any way, but... Um, you can I'm be, I'm a marketer. I don't mind a little, you can be a little salesy. That's okay, man. That's okay. If not, I'll do it for you because I think okay. this is all about promoting and letting people know what you do and and how that what you do could benefit them as well. So don't be don't be shy. Don't be shy. All right. Well, thanks very much. I'll go directly to my brochure then. Um, <laughs> no, no. So what we do is, uh, it's as I say, it's a little bit different. So we have a cross-functional team um, consisting of a whole bunch of different disciplines beyond the legal sphere. So I'm a lawyer, obviously. On our team, we have special civil, a professional civil environmental engineer by the name of Laura Roberts. Um, and then we also have uh, an enterprise risk management specialist, uh, we'll call her, Maya Douglas. She spent a number of years in consulting, um, doing, as I say, enterprise risk management, audit, indigenous relations, that sort of thing. So what we're trying to do is, you know, provide a bit of a broader scope of services on the ESG front um, than, you know, you'd see from most um, pure play law firms. So we're, we're, we're dabbling, I guess you could say, a little bit on the advisory side of things too. So, you know, at, at a very high level, uh, what we do is we help Companies either develop from the ground up or refine uh, their ESG programs and strategies. Um, so we work mainly, you know, in the energy industry, given uh, we work out of the Calgary office uh, as well. We do a lot of work with ag companies, uh, transport, financial services, indigenous business is a huge part of, of our client base um, and others. We're a, we're a full service commercial law firm. So we work, you know, with many of the 
extractive industries, particularly yep. in Western Canada there. And then we also do the kind of the bread and butter of what we've been doing lately with the uh, incoming mandatory uh, ESG legal requirements mm-hmm. is uh, ESG legal risk assessments. Um, so we'll look at, you know, a company's ESG program as well as all of their uh, public disclosure and just identify areas of risk to help them, you know, mitigate that because, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more on the podcast here, there is a, a fairly significant risk associated with all ESG um, disclosure going forward because of the... Because of just the regulatory. I was, of course, I was, I'm a professional creeper, so I was creeping on your LinkedIn <laughs> and reading some of your articles this morning. Yeah. And I've heard and I knew that was coming, but it sounds like it's here. So again, just to show, I want to short, short, short end it a little bit. Yeah. Biggest problem you solve for your customers, because you guys cover a lot and it's almost, that's the challenging part when you're listening. It's like, oh, what do they do? What do they not do? When you think about your customers and where you why you get up in the morning. Cause again, I also want to touch on, I appreciate you didn't just move into ESG because it became popular or became trendy. You've been environmental and regulatory law since the get-go. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and you know, it, it's different, different for every client. Um, I mean, okay. obviously companies that are public or if you're a bank insurance or trust company, you have yep. direct mandatory reporting requirements. So it's the services is more aligned with what you'd see with typical securities disclosure. So, you know, anything that you say to the market can kind of get you in trouble if it's not entirely (laughs) accurate. So, you know, public companies and and those federally regulated financial institutions, we help them that way. Um, But you also have, you know, most companies in Canada, in fact, are private, right? So we have a lot of private companies and some of them are are quite sizable. So they're, you know, that what they're looking for and what we help them for is a little bit different um, in that we're, we're trying to avoid liability, but also, maximize opportunity because what we're seeing is up and down supply chains um, for companies of all sizes, they're getting requests right on the supplier side and on the customer side to say, Hey, what are you guys doing from a perspective? So we help, we help clients with that just to, you know, answer that basic question. uh, What are they doing from an ESG perspective, but then also, you know, minimize the corresponding risk for public companies. It's that, as I say, securities esque type liability. Yeah, I appreciate it, which is very common. You're just adding something new into that bucket of reporting and being truthful with everything that you're saying. So yeah. just talking about the supply chain for a second, I'm a small to medium size. Like I understand you're a large enterprise. You have bandwidth, you have teams, you have accountability. You know, you're probably leaning in on this a little bit. Yeah. And all of those companies, if you just look at Calgary in the energy sector, the myriad of small to medium size from anywhere from a three person shop to a 300 person shop is servicing those large organizations. Yeah. The burden of proof, if you will, and that's my term, I'm just throwing it out there loosely <laughs> to say, hey, what are you doing? Because um, sure, we're a Suncor or we're somebody, we're a big brand, we're a big, we're yeah. a big nameplate. We are so liable simply because we've got so many different trades and groups that we're working with that we don't actually know what they're doing. Is that, I'm just thinking about also always empathizing with the small to medium size a little bit. It's nobody enterprise, nobody, no, nobody sympathizes with the enterprise level clients. You guys can handle, you have the money, but I'm a small shop. The burden of proof to say, hey, what are we doing to now be in compliance with what you said you were going to do, large, large client? That yeah. sounds like a really, and I know it is because I've had a lot of these conversations. That's a slippery slope and it gets really tricky for a lot of these smaller companies really fast. <laughs> I'll oh, stop big. talking. You're nodding. So I'll let, I'll, let you, I'll let you dive in on this one. I got going a little bit there. Yeah, no, no, no. It's an excellent, it's an excellent rabbit hole to go down. Sure. <laughs> okay. there's, there's a lot down there, right? And, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I guess maybe I'll try and answer it in, in the sequence of the question. You know, I guess as a starting point, our firm, um, we're not officially branded this way, but just based on our client base, you know, we kind of consider ourselves Western Canada's 
mid-market energy legal service providers. Okay. So that's okay. the place that we play in most of the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, we do have big clients, big publicly traded uh, E&P companies and um, that sort of thing. But you know, most of the clients that we work with, some are publicly traded, some not, but um, a lot, it's, it's basically all in the, in the mid-market. So okay. that, is, that is one of the issues that we deal with um, all of the time. And then I, I guess just on the supply chain point specifically, um, there is incoming federal uh, legislation that's mandatory relative to modern slavery requirements. So any mm. public company, as well as uh, any company, th- these are for larger size firms, whether you're public or private. So any public company or any private company that has uh, more than 20, 000, 20 million in revenue for a year, uh, more than 40 million in assets in Canada, uh, and more than 250 employees. So any two of those three requirements. Okay. And you're caught. 20 million, by- 40 million, or 250 employees? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and then there's mandatory reporting that's coming in for all of those organizations starting in 2024. And it's around supply chain due diligence, right? And did that recently just get pushed through? Like, because I do a little bit of work with International Justice Mission around yeah. their their move to end global. And once you start turning, like open that book, the numbers are staggering of what, like you say slavery to North America. They're like, well, what do you mean? Didn't we abolish that? But then you see the 50 million people enslaved globally. So I'm glad, thank you for touching on it. And I hadn't had an update recently on whether that got pushed through because Canada was on the fence whether they were going to go with that or not at one point, kind of from what I heard from the team at IJM. Yeah, no, for sure. So I I didn't check the news this morning, but... Um, okay, that, that current. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's that current. We're expecting it any any day. It has it has broad support of, of all the political parties and it's gone through the third reading. So it's just it's a, a difficult of, thing to come out against, let's be honest, you know, politically. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, exactly. And it's not... So there's a bit of a distinction there too, right? It's the attempt is, and the overall objective is to eradicate forced labor um, mm-hmm. and child labor, obviously. Um, but we haven't gone so far as to um, impose penalties if there is. Those, okay. If there are those, we haven't put any penalties. teeth on that one yet. <laughs> no, the reporting requirements are relative to due diligence. So just having companies demonstrate that they're doing that's all all that's reasonable okay which is which is still moving a good start a move in the right direction mm-hmm. that's exactly right it's, but i would say it's it's a bit of a start right so okay yeah when can you when can we not do do more i do yeah. really appreciate the concept of you know when i first started getting exposed to esg and i don't want to oversimplify this it's so easy to think of it from an environmental perspective because you live in western canada and my wife's worked on oil and gas for 20 years and sometimes yeah. well, we we travel a lot i've got family back east or in this in quebec region and how quick that narrative is like, oh, you're destroying this and you're destroying that. She's like, well, wait a second. Let me lay out all the things that we're doing. But when you start getting into the S and the G and you start pulling that through, it's a much more complex story that I think is just not clear depending on which side of the elephant you're looking at, you know, with your blindfold on going, I don't know, am I looking at the S? Am I looking at the G? To think about forced, forced labor on a global stage and the accountability for companies right that I can see out my window downtown right now being accountable for that. That's an interesting, that's a powerful, broad expansion of that thought <laughs> yeah no no absolutely and i mean we talk to clients about this all the time you're, you're exactly right you know esg is you know it was initiated and i'd say it's still for for the most part grounded in e and, and the okay. e capital e is climate change right yeah G emissions yeah. particularly are, are you know they dominate the conversation and I, I suspect they'll continue to do so for the foreseeable future if mm. not forever but that being said, I mean, there are other components within the E um, topics that are getting a lot of attention. Biodiversity yeah. is a big one currently, you know, water use, um, waste management, that sort of thing. 
And then on the social side, you know, we've already touched on the supply ch- ethical supply chain considerations uh, in Canada um, relative to truth and reconciliation. Indigenous relations is a huge one. Okay, um, we, okay. have, we have, I think, the largest Indigenous client base in Canada. So we work with a number of Indigenous clients as well as, you know, their industry partners, um, you know, in terms of bolstering and improving um, economic um, conditions and equity partnerships for okay, indigenous cool. organizations. That's another one. DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I was going to ask where that comes in, where companies can, you know, in quote unquote, in their own backyard or in their offices or in their remote teams or whatever the case may be. Uh, that's obviously getting a lot more attention over the last few years, which, which is great. And again, I, I do always have respect for companies of just how many things are coming at them. They need mm-hmm. to, but there's still, it's still a lot when you're, when you're quote unquote, trying to run a business at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I, I talk to our clients in the energy space about this often, you know, I'm, I'm sure lots of folks listening have probably heard about some of the anti ESG sentiment, particularly in the red States in the U S and, yep, and sure. elsewhere around the world, depending on where you are. Um, when I, when I'm talking to energy clients, um, you know, it's a bit ironic because a, a lot of that is bred from, um, I guess just a bit of a misunderstanding of what ESG actually is. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, you know, it's no more than, you know, enhanced due diligence of material uh, risks and opportunities, right? So it's just an expansion beyond financial metrics. And, you know, if you look at it from an investment perspective, if I'm an investor and I'm investing in any company, I want to know, you know, what are the risks out there that could, you know, um, mm-hmm. potentially compromise or, or put my investment at risk, right? And that isn't obviously limited to... Um, financial considerations only. So when we're talking mm-hmm. about the energy industry, and in particular the Canadian energy industry, there's a lot of good stuff, you know, on the S and the G side of things. So from my perspective, ESG is is maybe the best thing that's actually happened to the energy industry in, in a very long time, right? Even if you think of pre-COVID, you know, what, what was happening in our industry and commodity prices and, and all of the rest mm-hmm. of it, particularly on the oil and gas side of things. It's not good. <laughs> no, it was no. There was some dark. There was some dark times. You know, it was part of the impetus for starting the show of like, man, it's really dark out there in the media. I got to go and find because I know there's positive things going on. I'm going to go and start finding them. That was literally one of the main drivers to start that got me going on this four years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Was well, please let someone find the silver linings because I'm getting sick of this narrative in a province where I know there's 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 some there is some silver linings, right? Or there's some, and that that's gotten a lot better. And COVID, uh, yeah. Let's not talk about COVID and. The po- I like to focus on the positive impact of COVID, not the not the long list of negative. You touched on something, red states. Um, I had someone chat the other day. They're like, "Oh, I was listening. I was in my executive group, and they're like, oh, what if you know? What if there's a major change of government at the federal level? Are we going to see a big change in this movement?" And we had a woman in our in our team leads a large sustainability business practice. Uh, she joked she was in it before it was cool to be in it back in the '80s, but she said, "No, it's becoming bipartisan in the sense that so many of these issues on a Canadian level." are starting to slip away from left, right, or, you know, the color of your politics. Would you say that's true? I see you nodding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. In many ways, it's been taken out of, I mean, the anti-ESG movement politicizes the whole whole issue, right? Well, everybody politicizes everything if it's to their benefit, right? Let's be honest. That's That's a different, we'll not turn this into a political podcast, but I was curious, like even south of the border, if there's a bit of a difference and it is more, more, more politicized one place or the other. Well, certainly in the U.S., it is more politicized. But yeah. you know, back to the Canadian landscape from a political perspective, my guess is that regardless of the political party, you know, whether there was change over the next number of years or not, um, I don't think you're going to see a fundamental shift away from you know ESG investing. And the reason for that is 
it's it's international, right? A lot of this is driven from Europe and Asia, um, and the markets are demanding it effectively, right? Like all of our yeah, Canadian yeah, yeah. financial institutions now are required to report out on this, and that's going to flow through to their investment and lending decisions, obviously. So anyone that's you know has a credit facility with a, a major chartered bank, um, or if you know you're looking um, to be included in some of their portfolios from an investment perspective, you're going to have to, you know, disclose and um, demonstrate that you're performing well from an ESG perspective. So that's the driver. And then, you know, I, I talked to a number of the chartered banks as well, and they're getting pressure from international organizations as well, and their counterparts in, in Europe um, on that exact same topic, right? Because, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of it has to do with um, financed emissions and that sort of thing, because our banks, I mean, they lend to, you know, companies that exist here in Canada and we have a large extractive sector. So um, a lot of that money is tied up by necessity by those organizations, right? So, um, you know, a long-winded way of saying, you know, I don't think any change in politics will have any dramatic, if any, effect on the direction and trajectory of, of, um, you know, the ESG movement in Canada. Would you say from a, you made the comment, Best thing that happened to the energy sector from an investment perspective, there was a lot of years where, and and not, not that long ago, I don't want to make it sound like it was a long time ago. It was a few years ago where the energy sector was like banks were financial institutions were coming out and like, we're not investing in that sector anymore. Like we're just out of it because the negative press and the people picketing outside our offices wasn't worth it. Where now would you say that from an, back to your comment about ESG being the best thing that happened to the energy sector, is that starting to shift that a little bit where like, rather than just not investing in you as a blanket group, Let's find out who's doing what, who's got the, you know, their hand or handle or on their ESG, the handle on their, on their greenhouse gas emissions. Is that part of that best thing ever happened? Would you say I'm kind of extrapolating my own thought there? <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. That's a bit okay. more of a mixed bag, Tyler. Honestly, okay. there's still early to the table on that one. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's kind of two schools of thought in the investment community. One is just divestment, right? Like, and you see a, a lot of that in Europe. Um, you know, a, a few of the big banks and um, institutions over there have just taken the divestment approach. Like we are no longer investing or supporting, um, you know, particularly fossil fuels. Yeah, um, so you, you, you a, still, an, it's you an still, easy one to, to point yeah, finger at, right? Yeah, exactly. You see a lot of that, but increasingly, I would say, and, and you see the, a lot of this in Canada. Um, a lot of the institutional investors, banks included, um, are taking more of an engagement approach. Okay. So they're they're trying to talk to these organizations and you know big EMP companies about hey what are you guys doing to reduce your own carbon footprint right and then I guess the the other thing that I would mention there too and I've been talking a lot about this and I don't have a whole bunch of details and maybe it's just me um, with some wishful thinking uh, on behalf of our energy industry but I was in Montreal I'm okay um, with optimism I'm okay with, don't, don't yeah, apologize knew, for that don't apologize. I, knew you, I knew you I want to talk real, but I don't want to just be negative for sure. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, right. this, we tend to lean in a positive direction here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I was at the at the uh, IFRS International Sustainability Standards Board um, initial what was it called the inaugural sustainability symposium uh, in Montreal a few weeks ago, and Mark Carney was there um, okay. talking. Yeah, um, yeah. And and there was one thing that he said that I found very interesting, and he talked about you know not all companies. Um, are going to have the same level of performance or expectation when it comes to stewarding to these incoming international standards. And he used oil and gas as an example, and he and he kind of alluded to, you know, you're going to have different classes of assets, and, you know, maybe you have this class of assets that are eventually stranded, 
right? And, and I think, and it, it sounds kind of bleak, but if you actually think about it in the context of our Canadian energy industry, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? Because <clears throat> what I've been seeing kind of at the macro level is um, a lot of companies trying to be things that they're not, right? Like oil and gas companies, they're good at whatever segment of the oil and gas industry they participate in, right? Whether okay. that's pumping it out, whether that's transporting or refining, whatever, yep. right? They're very good at that. That's their core business. And if you think of it from like a Malcolm Gladwell perspective, it's, it's do what you're good at, right? Don't try and do things that are beyond your core competencies. You know, over periods, and I'm not going to name names here, obviously, but over the last 20 years, you've seen a lot of uh, particularly super majors um, you know, try to get into like the renewable space and that sort of thing. And, you know, just diversifying their portfolio yep. and whatnot, but really it, it was never a part of their core business strategy. And I, and I would argue in many cases that shouldn't be part of your strategy, right? Like I think mm -hmm. there's a place where in the future where energy companies can actually just be forthright and say, listen, you know, we are an oil and gas company. We are producing oil. We're going to reduce our carbon footprint as much as we can. But what we're doing um, by doing that is actually enhancing and increasing the energy transition, right? Because you need energy with our current infrastructure in order to facilitate any sort of energy transition. You need, you know, there's a massive overhaul of our energy system is required in order mm -hmm. to get to, you know, if we're talking about net zero on whatever timeline. Um, but, you know, what I don't think is helpful is when you have energy companies um, trying to be something that they're not. Right. So I, I think there's actually a place where, you know, energy companies in the future, as I say, they're they're just a bit more transparent and a bit more focused even on, you know, that particular segment of industry that they happen to be in. Which I think is really interesting. It's as a core competency and we could have a you know, like a business strategy conversation. I have I my business coach for the year is like, what's your, you know, first of all, permissibility, what's your what's your customer, or your audience going to permit you to actually do? And what actually should you be doing? Like, what are those things that you're the actually truly the best at? Not the things that on some strap plan you wrote down, you wanted to be the best at. Those are different. Those are different things. I really appreciate that. But it also feels like right now in the climate and the world that we're in, and I say climate more as a, as a non-natural statement, it feels like that's a risky move, what you just said. Because that takes a lot of confidence to go, we're the best energy company. Damn you for being a fossil fuels company. Okay, yeah, but look around. This isn't shutting down in the next couple of years. And we will talk about some of our net zero goals as well. Let's, we don't want to leave that one floating out there. <laughs> really, those feel like they might be a bit, a bit have been selected randomly for political reasons, uh, but we'll circle back. Uh, I just appreciate what you said and I love it. And I don't for a second think that's an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, no, no. Like in line with what we were talking about, before in terms of not being afraid to speak optimi optimistically. I'm also not afraid to speak in a in, complete <laughs> an entire vacuum, um, which, which is what, what, what I just did there, right? So, I mean, yes. I, mean, I love reality, it. I love it. It's my bubble, and I will say whatever I got there. We'll feel like, oh, I appreciate that. The reality is they can't, we're not, and, and as I say, this is, on top of that, this is me just kind of hearing things that maybe that I want to hear, right, you know, on behalf of our industry. But, cognitive, cognitive bias is a real disease. Oh, it, it is. At least I'm aware of it to, to some extent. But, you know, I, I think as time goes on, you know, hopefully minds can can shift in that way. Um, you know, it, there's, I often talk about, you know, there's only one example I'm aware of where a company in the extractive oil and gas industry has made the full transition. And that's the Danish oil and natural gas company. They, they transferred over to Orsted. Now they're the world's largest renewable company. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great news story if you just 
think of it that way, but they're state-owned, right? So they, they, they don't like have... A whole different own. set of accountabilities. Yeah. Quarterly they're, reporting cycles are different. Everything's no, different. And, and investors are just like... Investors who invest in oil and gas are not investing for those oil and gas companies to make a full transition, right? Like they're just... They're simply not. So okay, um, it's... Right. Return on capital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, well, let, let's, you, you hinted at it. Let's talk about it. Some of these um, net zero goals that we have, and you can pick it 2025 or 2030 or 20, 2050. And thinking about just the sheer magnitude of change that has to happen from even if a lot of people on like, great, we're going to electrify all of our cars, but then what grid are we going to plug into? Because the current grid we have can't even support that. I'm just picking one little threat, you know, and I'm not yep. saying I'm for or against. I'm against progress. I'm sorry. I'm for, <laughs> pro- I'm sorry, I came out wrong. I'm I'm for progress, so whatever that looks like. So not to say this or that, but you hear a lot. And again, I've heard someone say this: we're in a dangerous place when marketing rhetoric drives policy, not the other way around. <laughs> and you know, thoughts on that when you hear some of these net zero goals, which I'm assuming gets you in the room and gets you into a lot of conversations. Like, okay, Connor, we've got to sit down here because 2025 is coming, 2020, 2030, especially for large companies, that's tomorrow in their in their in their worlds. What yeah. are your thoughts on just the reality of that? Is it driving the right behavior? even though we might not actually get to whatever that number is, but the moonshot is still worth it because of all the things we did to drive towards it. Even if we miss it by 10%, we're still 90% closer than we were kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So net, net zero goals is something that we often get questions from clients and talk to clients about. Um, I guess where I would start there is uh, using broad strokes, most net zero goals are not realistic or achievable. And the reason for that. Um, I think has a lot to do with, again, going back to the mandatory reporting. Like we often describe kind of two waves of ESG reporting. Um, The first one was voluntary and it was mostly characterized by, um, I guess, a promotional um, component, you could say. And that started with, you know, corporate sustainability or corporate social responsibility um, reporting and that sort of thing. So you'd see ESG, CSR, sustainability reports over the last 15 years that are you know, largely promotional. It's good news stories, a lot of cherry picking from the different voluntary frameworks to try and paint the company in the best light possible. Along with that, oftentimes they would, um, you know, develop some sort of net zero goal, usually without the benefit of actual operational data or strategic planning or the finances or anything really. You know, it, it was, <laughs> it was, it's just, they just never it, ever let um, reality you know, get in the way of a good idea. <laughs> that's well, I, I actually do agree with that, but um, a, a lot what of companies, could go, what could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, the carbon disclosure project CDP um, just came out with, you know, their analysis of, I, I can't remember the, the sample set, but they estimate that somewhere in the neighborhood of 99% of net zero goals are not realistic. Right. So, as 99%. Say, okay. So yeah, it's a fun, yeah. it's a, that's a polite way to not say all of it is, all of it is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. But I think what you're going to see um, is, as I say, when we move into this mandatory reporting um, regime, you're going to see organizations uh, dedicate so many more resources and apply so much more rigor to ESG reporting. And that will force behaviors internally, yeah, right? Yeah. Including what gets measured gets done. That old chestnut, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think you're going to see shifting of net zero targets and softening of the language around some of them and that sort of thing. I, I don't think you're going to see the end of, of net zero goals. I mean, governments globally have come on. It's too good of, a rhetoric to park it. Let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, but you're going to see a fundamental shift in the way that those are communicated. And in many cases, who, who is actually making the commitment and, and on what timeline. I, I, I really, I really appreciate that. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm a, my organization, we use John Dewar's the OK, OKR model. And in there, they're like, you need moonshots. And 
Yep. You're probably going to miss them, but the work that gets done or the energy or the thought or the stimulus that it creates to think about how you might do this crazy thing that has a snowball's chance in hell, but, and the energy that that can drive inside your organization. So I kind of look at it that way. It's the permissibility from the political side, the permissibility from the investor side to say, oh, you didn't hit them, but, but, and let's look at all the good things you did do. And that just feels way too balanced for the society that we live in. It feels way too more common sense for what tends to track these days as we push harder. You know, someone told me the other day, if you go far enough right and you go far enough left, they come back around and touch each other. So it's just crazy hanging out. I'm like, that was a really, I, I appreciated that. Yeah. <laughs> back oh, to the political side. Great visual, yeah. Yeah, you go, you, go, you go far enough away and sooner or later, everyone's just hanging out in their own little pool of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, and anyways, I don't think much of a skit. So that, that's an interesting concept. Uh, globally, and this is maybe in getting, you, getting you out ahead of your skis on this question. There's countries that, from an environmental perspective, like a drop in the bucket, Canada's impact versus what, and I won't even name China, India, like points of fingers. Uh, is this putting us, and what are your thoughts on, is this putting Canada at any kind of a global disadvantage when you think of things on a big, like maybe not even 30,000 feet, we'll go all the way up to 50,000 and think of it on a macro scale. We're now putting limitations on our organizations that make it challenging for them to compete globally against countries, against states that are not putting nearly the same priority or restrictions or back to your, your comment about being state owned. And some of our competitors are not being hamstrung by these kind of things. Any thoughts on that or any perspective? I'm asking you to go way outside on this one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's actually not. Like we do talk to our clients about this quite often as well, right? And, and I, you know, going back to the mandatory reporting, I think what's going to happen, actually I know what's going to happen is you're going to see um, move towards standardization interna internationally, right? Like the International Sustainability Standards Boards are releasing their um, first set of rules here in June of this year, and then they're going to be effective January next year. They won't be um, a direct requirement for Canadian companies immediately, but the Canadian Securities Administrators and the Office the superintendent of financial institutions, there's a mouthful, um, have both. You live in a world of big acronyms and uh, lots of terms. Yeah, uh, tell me about it. But <laughs> both, both of those uh, agencies have um, explicitly endorsed the, the work of the ISSB. And then we have a Canadian Sustainability Standards Board that are working on implementing those ISSB rules. But this to is a great, way to create to, some consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Canada is going to ultimately align to these international standards, as are many other. Uh, countries, some of which you mentioned. I mean, uh, just as a side note, <laughs> I read the other day that China um, is going to have mandatory ESG reporting, and I, I can only imagine what that's going to look like, right? But, um, but you know, joking aside, I, I, I actually it's hard not to laugh. Go, okay, okay, sure, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But joke, all joking aside, like I think what's going to happen is once you have you know a better alignment and more standardization as between jurisdictions and as between and among industries, it's going to paint an actual better picture, right? Because we talk, you know, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I do as well. You know, Canada has the, you know, the best ESG performance uh, in the oil and gas industry globally. Yep. I would, I would tend to agree with that. If there's a last barrel pumped, it should be Canadian because it's yeah. the best barrel. Yeah, I've heard that from a few people. I, I like that one. I get, I get, yeah. I feel some pride around that one. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, and I would agree with that. And I think, you know, going back to the whole anti-ESG movement, you know, in a kind of an, not an ironic way, but I think it's a bit different than most people in our industry think about it. I believe that once those ISSB rules become mandatory, we're actually going to be able to prove those things that we're mm. playing, right? Whereas before it, it just yeah, all yeah. sounded like promo and rhetoric and everything else. But no, if we actually have the data and we can cross compare that to competitors in, in Europe and in Asia and the US, you know, I, I think that actually helps that narrative and actually brings, you know, credibility 
um, to a lot of those statements. And hopefully over time that translates into, you know, as you say, um, you know, Canada being looked to and relied upon as the ethical oil and gas supplier for the world. Which I, as a marketer and a brand guy, I love it, whether it's, you know, the ocean wise stamp or the green check, or if you look at what we, the thing we consume, I would say probably maybe less or the same. <laughs> I don't even know what the numbers are, but we consume food like it's going out of style. And if you look mm-hmm. at uh, clearly for necessity and for all of the other reasons food exists, but if you look at the movement around, oh, this was raised in an ethically sourced fashion. This is, this is raised, uh, this is, this is environmentally sound, or this is pesticide free. And the energy sector feels like it's right for that. Like from a marketing and brand perspective, I know it's so much more complicated, but listening to what you just said, that makes me feel like we can start leaning in that direction of giving the consumer the power. And right now the consumer, I think tends to be often misinformed. And I'm being saying that respectfully. I grew up in Quebec. I knew nothing about the energy sector. Zero. You know about price at the pump. That's all you know. Yeah. And yeah. all the other stuff is just rhetoric. You pick up in the media. I move out here and I'm like, Oh, there's a whole thing <laughs> going on here. You know, how do we, and I think the energy sector, I will point a finger, they've been notoriously bad at telling any version of their own story until someone just grabbed it out of their hands and then decided to throw it down a flight of stairs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're totally right about that. Um, the energy industry, speaking broadly, um, has put itself behind the eight ball in many ways. And unfortunately, you know, this is getting away from our rosy optimism of earlier in the podcast. Is this the reality side? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the hard part on the promo and marketing side of things is, you know, as I mentioned before, we're in this. We're, we've been in this promotional wave of voluntary ESG reporting, and unfortunately, um, from what I'm seeing, and this is across the industry, is we have a, a lack of rigor around the data that we use to um, actually tell that story. So, you know, as, as much as it would be nice if we could start, you know, telling the story now, I think it'll take a little while to actually get that credible data baseline because I know that. You know, lots of sustainability teams, and, and this is not meant as a derogatory um, statement, but most sustainability teams over the years haven't had the support internally of their organizations in the same way that, you know, a finance group has, for instance, when they're doing the securities reporting. And then also, you also have your first, second, and third line of defense in terms of self-assessments, internal audit, external audit, you know, all the assurance pieces of it as well. That just hasn't existed for sustainability reporting. So, you know, if you went out, you know, say X oil and gas company went out and said, hey, we are the most ethical oil company in the world, as an example. And then two, three years down the road, the data comes in and it doesn't support that. Then you're you're in maybe even in a worse off position if that's possible. Right? Yeah, no, 100%. And, and you alluded to it earlier a little bit. Is there a time where, and maybe how far are we away from that now? Again, just armchair answer. Because it's seen as a cost center versus a value center, or, you know, a revenue center. And you yeah. talk about... And again, I live in marketing. Some companies are like, oh, we have to market. It's part of our business. You know, we've not done a lot of business in the energy sector because they don't see it as they just a pure cost center. Like we don't need this to run our business to be successful. Mm-hmm. I, I could see if some, you know, I can empathize some brotherly affection here for the fact that ESG gets put in that same category as marketing and brand sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot myself in there, but I've had those conversations. <laughs> like, I'm not going to keep trying to sell this to you because you don't value it. And maybe rightfully so, because it might not seem them as a direct benefit to your business. Yeah. where that sustainability team gets put in the broom closet because they're not seen as a real driving value prop to the business. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a, that's an excellent, it's an excellent observation. And I think it's, it's very true, right? Like, and we, we, I wouldn't say that we battled that, you know, in terms of setting up our, 
our practice at the law firm here. But you know, you do get those questions, right? Like, why are why are why are we doing this? You know, yeah, what yeah. value is this adding to the business? And I guess what I would say is, show me the business case. Show me the numbers, Connor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a risk advisor, right? So certainly, we're going to give you advice on the risk side of things. But increasingly, what we're seeing, and you know, despite my earlier comments about not every energy company is going to make a full transition, that's not to say that there aren't other opportunities out there, right? You know. Right now, I'm actually at a at a conference, a CCUS conference in Regina, and that's a great example, right? Where the oil and gas industry has a whole other stream of opportunity, I think. And you think of things like hydrogen and LNG and lithium and helium and alternative energy sources. Like those, I think, are actually closer to the core competencies of of many oil and gas. Mm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I get very optimistic about those because it's. Yeah. We're so good at it. <laughs> like we've got such a back to core competence conversation. You get to lithium or the hydrogen. I've had a few guests on talking about that. I get quite excited about that quite quickly because it doesn't feel like you're getting way outside your, you're like, oh, we're going to all of a sudden, you know, do this. And we're like, what, what, why the heck would you do that? Where you hear those stories, it, to me, it just makes sense at a, at a, at almost a surface level really quickly. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, what, and the conference you're at, you threw the acronym out again, your world is drowning in acronyms. Now. <laughs> yeah. It's a carbon capture utilization and storage conference. Ah, okay. Got so it. Oh, the CCUS. Obviously, of course. I'm sorry. I was sleeping at the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's all good. It's, it's, it, well, it's really well attended. And I mean, there's a business and a technical stream, just a ton of attention. Like I grew up in Southern Saskatchewan and we're in Regina here. So it's the conference is sold out. We have. Okay. All and have you seen over the years going to these conferences, like, you were the first 20 people there. Now there's 250 people. Like, is it, is it moving in that direction? Like when you hear about a sold out conference, there's interest. <laughs> well, it's, it's been a, it's been a cycle for sure. So this is, okay. well, it's actually called the Wilson Basin Petroleum Conference. And okay. the, the focus is on CCUS, but oh, um, they used to alternate between North Dakota and Saskatchewan. And hmm. predominantly it dealt with kind of the Bakken formation. Okay. And it was, it was purely on the oil and gas side for the last number of years, but over the last couple of years, anyway, it's, making this transition, right, as, as industry has. And, um, you know, going back to COVID and that sort of thing, there was a, a real lack of activity in this area um, during those times, right? Like the many operations were just shut down indefinitely. Um, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing a little bit of a renaissance or resurgence yeah. via these alternatives. Some pent-up pent demand need right yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when you look out, you know, obviously sustainability, SG, the broad sweeping, what, what are you the most optimistic about in relation to the clients and the conversations you have? And where, back to the reality of there's got to be two, can't just be the optimistic side of the coin. Where are you, where do you see the most concerns or the areas that you're like, ah, you know, we're going to, that's going to be a struggle. Like we're going to, we're going to, we're going to push that idea uphill here for a few more years. Yeah, for sure. I mean, on the, on the opportunity side, I think we touched a lot on that, you know, for the energy industry in particular, I think it's, it's an unlimited opportunity when you think of, you know, what we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, relativity um, from an international perspective, I think we're in a really good position. Um, from a di diversification of the industry perspective, we're in a really good position. Um, you know, and, and you know, we are a part of the Western world as well, right, which we haven't talked about a whole lot as well. So, you know, we're, we have a, a pretty sophisticated regulatory system, I think, that is, is you know, working its way towards supporting a lot of these activities. Um, and, and they're doing it in real time. And, I mean, it's all happening pretty quickly and rapidly. So the velocity is, is pretty extreme, but you know, our, I've seen a concerted effort by our governments and our regulatory agencies to support uh, industry in that way. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm very bullish on, on all of those components for sure. Um, I guess in terms of challenges, uh, a lot of it has to do with <laughs> going back to that 
voluntary ESG reporting wave. Um, when I look at sustainability reports from, from a lot of companies over the last number of years, they're, they're just not credible, right? And so I, I think there's a, a, a quite a bit of work to do there, in fact, to get these reports into a position where they can be relied upon, right, for all of these things that we're talking about, whether it's um, talking to government, whether it's talking to, uh, you know, the institutional investment community, that sort of thing. So I think there's there's definitely some some work to do there and, and companies need to, A, develop a program and a strategy and then, you know, put in place all those robust process processes and systems to allow them to, you know, develop that data baseline and then further from that, um, you know, use that information um, to develop opportunities, promotional or otherwise. It needs to be more than just a brochure, an ESG brochure is what I'm hearing. If I was going to short line that with my yeah. marketing hat on. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. It's it looks pretty and it's got some nice grass, but what actually is it telling? And can that be validated? And like, could you go to the world and say we are X because of this? You know, then you find out really, really, really quickly, which I do. I appreciate that. Let's circle back. Just uh, you, you, I think maybe I didn't talk about it from a north because you said Western Canada's you know law firm, which I, mm. I, I love. Mm. Do you do work south of the border as well? Like, do you are you working with companies in the U.S. at all, or are you just more aware of what's going on there? Yeah, we have some uh, clients that have cross border operations. I mean, we need to be a bit careful because we're not licensed to practice in the U.S. Okay, I, okay, yeah, yeah. There is have, just geographically restrictions. <laughs> yeah, we we have uh, you know formal and informal partnerships with you know like minded regional law firms in the U.S. that we okay. prefer work back and forth to that way. But yeah, pre- predominantly the work is is here in Canada. Yep. And when you see just the the sentiment towards this and different big different how substantial are the differences between both sides of the border from your from your perspective just even at the regulatory and maybe the appetite level and you know sounds like there's some politicized and again you, you watch the news you hear it politicized in, in in the US but is there a difference sentiment between what the Canadian government's been putting out and what they're showing they're believing in through their actions versus what you're seeing happen in the US yeah I don't know that there's a, a singular answer to that. It kind okay. of depends what, what part of it it's we're complicated. talking about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, because if you, if you look at it just purely from a reporting perspective, like what's going to be required from a reporting perspective, Canada has actually been, you know, not heavily, but slightly criticized because our reporting requirements are not as robust as some of the other mm. jurisdictions, okay. including the U.S. So the U.S.'s okay. current proposal is actually much more rigorous than, than that of Canada's. But that... I think it's actually a function of time. Like the Canadian securities administrators came out before the securities and exchange commission in the U S so they kind of had the first kick at it. And I think they were just trying to, you know, this is me again, just extrapolating without Mm -hmm. without the benefit of any actual knowledge, but (laughs) I I, I think that they were just kind of dipping their toes into the reporting side of things. And then the U S came out with something more robust, but then on the other side, you have, you know, like we say that real um, politicization and polarization of ESG in the U.S. and it and it is very, um, yes. you know, political in terms of you know Republican versus Democrat, Democrat, so to speak. Whereas we don't really have that. It feels yeah. like it's falling away to become more of a universal truth in yeah. Canada. And I've had been my executive. This came up, and like I said, that question about it, well, if we had a major change of government, would all these rules go away? And a few individuals that were informed were like, no, absolutely not. It's it's become much more of a just a core factor not oh this is right that's a right-leaning issue or a left-leaning issue mm-hmm. yeah for sure and then just a, a final mm-hmm. thought on that like talking about some of the diversification opportunities i would say that the, the u.s with the 
Inflation Reduction Act um, is way ahead of Canada in terms of okay. incentivizing some of the, the, that work. The right behavior. Um, the, the money that they're putting towards that is just astronomical. Right? I mean, Canada, we're not going to uh, have the same scale, obviously, but um, you know, we have a lot of clients talking about, especially those that have cross-border operations. Like For the foreseeable future, it makes more sense to focus on the U.S. from a project development perspective. Than Interesting. Okay. Yep. So more of a carrot, less of a stick, where Canada, we're maybe leaning more on the stick side of the equation yeah i don't want to be too hard on our on our government like we they're certainly doing a lot of a lot of things and you know in the recent budget there was there's a lot of positive um encouragement and initiatives that are being put towards you know that those sort of diversification opportunities for the energy industry i just say it's it's not as um incentivizing as as so okay yeah carbon tax Let's, let's talk about sleep wait right to the end to talk about this um obviously there's some things coming down the pipe that are there's some doom and gloom stories out there depending who you want to talk to on the impact that that's going to have any thoughts i'm assuming you're in many a boardroom having this conversation about the next three to five years mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure i mean there's no there's no pretty way to, to paint that i mean it yeah <laughs> you know that, that the carbon tax is is meant to change behavior right and i, I think it's it's going to so, uh, you know, with a huge uh, stick. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, the, it's the opposite of what I was talking about before, where lots of these companies maybe haven't had as much rigor around um, sustainability reporting itself. But what I would say is there's not an E&P company that I know of that is, <laughs> isn't acutely aware yeah, of yeah. the impact of the, of the carbon tax and, you know, what that looks like over the next number of years. Um, so it is driving behavior. You know, at the same time, going back to the rose-colored glasses side of things, there's opportunity there as well, right? Like the carbon markets and, I yep. mean, you know, the... The, arb- the arbitrage market around that. And I've had some conversations with people that live in that space and they're quite excited about it because it gives them another thing to trade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. So, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom, but yeah, to say that, you know, that's... A tax is a tax is a tax, right? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. right. We love taxes, no one ever, right? Except maybe the person who's collecting it. But that's that's an interesting mechanism, and uh, I think we, I think you know what, I'm going to park that and put a pin in that because I've. Let's have another episode. We we'll prep it. Let's just talk about carbon tax. It'll be a real edge of your seat kind of. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you only need the edge kind of episode. Yeah, uh, like a good monster truck weekend. But I think we could do a whole episode on carbon tax. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, I, I digress. I could go into a whole monster truck. I put, I, could, I I resisted doing my monster truck voice, so I'll save that for another an, another day. Connor, I'm going to give you the magic wand. I love asking this question at the end. And you're going to wave your magic wand. It's your magic wand, so you can do whatever the heck you want with it. That's the beauty of a magic wand. No, 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 no one gets to comment. What would you do in Western Canada that would you see would have a positive impact, not only on our sustainability, but kind of the profitability and the success of, our, of us as a whole, as a province, as a, as a participant on a, at a Canadian level? What would you do with your magic wand? That's an excellent question, and I haven't put any any thought into that other than the time that it took for you to ask that question. So, take my answer for what it will. There's my very legal disclaimer. Um, Typical lawyer. <laughs> yeah, totally. But the uh, the thing that I think would help, and and this is speaking mainly to the energy industry, okay. is uh, is, and I know that the, this is happening in a variety of ways, but is a more concerted um, effort in terms of collaboration, like I know there is collaboration going on, but I'm thinking even more in terms of, um, you know, trying to influence some of the standard setting and that sort of thing. And and actually maybe coming out with some support for these international standards that are coming Mm out. You know, as I talked about, I think it's a huge opportunity, but um, you know, from what I've seen uh, publicly anyway, from, from a lot of 
energy industry participants, they don't necessarily view it that way, or, or at least they're not talking about it publicly. So I, I think it's, it's, it's an embrace, you know, recognizing, you know, these changes are happening, but also, um, you know, trying to find a place at the table um, to communicate and promote some of the things that we're doing, you know, on the, on the international scale um, in, in a slightly different way than, I, than we've done historically. I appreciate the argument. The, the challenges we're facing and the, and the opportunities we have in front of us, they're not one-offs, they're global. And it's very hard to do that. You know, if I recycle, but none of my neighbors do, what impact am I having? Like that mindset of coming together. Yeah. And I've had a, you know, a lot of conversations with companies over the years, even uh, the pipeline industry. We used to do some work with, uh, with SEPA as an agency. We mm-hmm. helped with the, some of their reporting and just seeing some of the challenges they had, but also the opportunity when they get 12 and 13, the biggest pipeline companies in the room together, actually opening their kimonos a little bit and comparing notes because the problem is too big for anyone to, t- to tackle. And I do appreciate that, but it's very easy for you and I to armchair that right here. That's what we, that's <laughs> yeah. chat, right? Well, well, let me tell you, cause I have the microphone. I have all the answers. <laughs> Connor, it's so good to chat with you. I really yeah. appreciate your candor and your willingness to kind of, you know, from a legal perspective, just say things that are a little bit what you believe. And that's what these podcasts are all about to give people an opportunity. And I love that you're taking, you know, data points from 50 different conversations you've had and boiling them into like, here, let me tell you something. So I really appreciate your candor around that. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? They want to continue the dialogue. You're, I see you're super active on LinkedIn, so I think that's probably a great spot. Mm. Yeah, LinkedIn is probably the best 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 place to catch me. Catch me outside at uh, LinkedIn. Um, nice. But but otherwise, yeah, our website um, has all my contact info and and all that good stuff. And and I'm happy to chat with with anybody. All, I shouldn't say anybody. Almost anybody <laughs> within the bounds of civility. Wait a real you reel that one back in quick. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, thanks and the phone is ringing off the hook at Connor's house today. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. yeah. <laughs> yes. With it, I, I, I appreciate that. And, uh, you've got some great, I just, just on your LinkedIn, I was diving down yesterday and today and like some great articles and I, pre- I appreciate content doesn't create itself and you keep a pretty steady stream pumping out there. So th- thank you for that thought, thought leadership or, you know, putting things out there. It doesn't happen by itself. And I do appreciate in the world of as we drown uh, in content, having someone curating a few pieces for us, there's a huge value there. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, yeah, th- thanks very much for reading. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate the invite here, Tyler. This is a lot of fun. You know, as we thank talked you. about the first time, this was super engaging uh, conversation. And yeah, your energy and enthusiasm is infectious. So thank oh, you thanks, man. For that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. My, my secret is simple. I love doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Connor, again, enjoy your conference today and we'll chat again. Thank you, my friend. All right. Thanks a lot, Tyler. Take care.